Isaiah 51 to 11. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Amen. Well, good evening. Let me add my welcome to David's. Uh, my name is Sam, and yeah, it's a real delight to be able to be preaching uh, with you tonight, to be able to go through God's Word with you tonight. Uh, if you want to turn back to Isaiah chapter 50, uh, and just as you're finding it again, I want you to, I guess, think about something, because I've been trying to keep up with the news a little bit more recently, um, not always with great success, but if I were to ask you to, yeah, check the news and then tell me what direction you thought the world was heading in, what would you say? Because there's a lot going on in the world right now. I think we're all kind of maybe feeling an atmosphere of confusion, maybe distress or despair in the sight of it all. You know, we've got war, political turmoil, the rise of artificial intelligence, whatever the heck monkeypox was, I still don't fully understand that one. You've got the climate crisis, cost of living, cultural divides, and that's, that's just the headlines. It all goes round in circles, and it never really seems to get any better, does it? And I'm not here to just spread doom and gloom. I don't want us to all go away kind of hanging our heads in sorrow, but it's hard not to feel sometimes like maybe just everything's hanging by a thread. And if you're a Christian here tonight, you, you know for a fact that God has a plan for this world. But it maybe doesn't always feel that way, does it? You know, we, can, we know that we can have hope in God's promises for the future, 
Jesus said he's going to come again. He's going to restore peace and justice to this world. But at least from our perspective, that seems to be taking an awfully long time. So in the face of each new crisis that floods the news, maybe we can often just feel as, as lost and as hopeless as many people do in the world around us. A friend of mine who works in student ministry, he was telling me recently about a, a teenage boy at his church. He feels like there's nothing really to look forward to in the future. You know, this, this kid should feel like he's, he's got his whole life ahead of him, but instead he just sees a world that it's ab- that's in absolute turmoil. Any job he wants to do, it's probably going to get taken over by AI in the future, so what is there to get excited about? And let's be real here, even if we profess that true and living hope of the gospel, we can still fall victim to, to despair, to hopelessness. You know, Jesus says he's coming again, but what if he doesn't? Or what if the world just falls apart before that happens? And you know what? Let's, let's say that it does. Let's say that the worst predictions of our news feeds come true. What would that, what would that feel like? Because I think it would probably genuinely feel like the end of the world. Where could we turn to for hope that God would fulfill his promises? Well, the people of God in the Old Testament went through that exact experience. They knew that God had promised Abraham that he was going to bless the whole world through them, through one of his descendants. But things didn't seem to work out that way. They abandoned their covenant with the Lord. They went and worshipped other gods and adopted their practices. And so instead of blessing flowing through them, judgment came to them. The empires of Assyria and Babylon attacked them, laying absolute waste to their homelands and carrying the survivors off into exile. The city of Jerusalem was ransacked. The temple, the, the place where God was dwelling with his people on earth, it lay in ruins. You know, it's maybe not too dissimilar from the images we've seen from that part of the world in recent weeks. It would have felt like the absolute end of the world. Their home was gone. They were living as strangers in a strange land, and that land wanted to eradicate any trace of their faith in the Lord. Hope was probably something in short supply. And when the Lord's people despair... We have a bad habit of blaming the God that we think has abandoned us. Well, that's where the prophet Isaiah comes in. We're spending a bit of time in the book of Isaiah this morning. Well, he's, he's writing long before the exile, but he kind of has two things in view. He, he's calling out the people for the sin that would lead to the exile. He's rebuking them on that. But he's also shedding light on a future that lies on the other side of exile. So we're dropping in here at chapter 50. What he's doing here is he's predicting both the despair that God's people would find themselves in after the fall of Jerusalem and promising a hope that would appear in the future. It's a, it's a rich and a stirring call to, to faithfulness, to faith in God's promises and his faithfulness to his people. And I really hope we do feel that tonight as we look through it. Because we're going to see how God declares his faithfulness even in the darkest of times. We'll hear the voice of this promised servant who will live a faithful life. And we'll hear a call for God's people to walk by faith, 
even in something as, as dark and terrifying as the exile was. It's part of a little cycle in Isaiah called the servant songs, and they're passages that promise the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. You know, we're entering a darker, colder time of the year. A few weeks' time, we'll probably start thinking about Advent, about that first coming of Jesus, where we really cling to these sort of passages. So as we look at the world around us and we, and we wait for his second coming, let's allow those promises to, to shine a light into the dark world around us. So first of all, look with me at verses one to three. We're going to see that we should trust the faithful God. Trust the faithful God. So chapter 49, just before this, this promised the restoration of the land of Israel and the return of God's people to their home. God's saving grace, it's a declaration of his, his might and his power. If you have it there in front of you, just look at the, the last verse of chapter 49, verse 26, just at the very end. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. As we begin chapter 50, God continues to promise hope and to declare his character. And he actually does that by challenging his own people's lack of faith in his saving power. Start of chapter 50, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? So as they languish in exile, God's people are, are no doubt tempted to question his goodness. Does he have the power to save them when Babylon and their gods seem to have triumphed? Does he still love them? Or has he just abandoned them altogether? And think about us today. Right? The church has been waiting for Christ to come again for 2,023 years. That's a long time, and the church and Christians have suffered so much in that time. Isn't it tempting to think that maybe Jesus has forgotten us? Well, God challenges this accusation of abandonment in verse 1, where he compares the situation to divorce and slavery. So these may be slightly bizarre questions. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce? To which of my creditors have I sold you? These are, these are rhetorical. They're designed to expose just how, how ridiculous it is to accuse God of feebly abandoning his people. So let's take the slavery analogy, for instance. Um, hopefully this is something that feels unfamiliar or maybe a little bit alien. Um, we don't really have a culture of indentured servitude uh, anymore, but in those days, someone uh, might sell a family member into slavery, even just for a short period of time, in order to pay back a debt that they owed to a creditor. Well, God has no creditors. God doesn't owe anyone anything. He hasn't sold his people because he can maybe for some reason no longer afford to keep them or to care for them. They've been sent away, but they've been sent away because of their iniquities. They've been disobedient to him. This is, a, this is a punishment, not an abandonment. 
And we also have this scenario of a broken marriage. And marriage is a, it's a powerful symbol in the Bible for God's covenant relationship with his people. It shows the relational heart of our God and also just how heartless we can be in our own sin. Well, when God asks for his people to find the certificate of divorce, he knows they won't be able to find one. It, it isn't there. You know, he might have sent his faithless bride away for a time, but he has not divorced her. He is faithful even when his bride isn't. He has called his true people by name and he's joined them to himself. And what God's joined together, he won't separate. But this contrasting faithlessness of his bride is seen in verse 2. You know, he comes to her, but instead of joy, he's met with despair. Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? So behind their accusations of God being faithless, his people instead reveal that they've lost all hope of rescue. And there's something like heartbreakingly human in how when they give up on hope, they can't even recognize it when it calls, comes calling to them. But God doesn't give up on his people as easily as they give up on him. Exile was never meant to be the end of the story. It is judgment, yes, it is punishment, but it's not abandonment. God's promise to bless the world through Abraham's descendants, that still stands, and the Lord is a man of his word. So having declared his faithfulness, he now declares his power to deliver. And the imagery he uses here is of dried seas, deserted rivers, darkening skies. Maybe it sounds a little bit familiar because it's, it's calling to mind this kind of great milestone and paradigm of salvation in the Old Testament. It's all language that calls to mind the Exodus. So despite all their grumbling and hopelessness when they were in Egypt, God rescued Israel out of bondage and brought them into his presence. And here he's promising to do the same again. You know, the Exodus, it comes up all the time. It's referenced again and again in both the Old and the New Testaments because it wasn't just a one-off. It's, it's a blueprint. It sets the pattern for how God faithfully rescues his people and calls them into a life of obedience and love with him. You know, it, it was more than just something that he did. It was more than an action. It was a revelation of who he is. Now, if you're familiar with Exodus, if you've read it or seen the many film adaptations, it's full of signs and wonders and spectacular moments. But that's not just empty spectacle. It's not just some fireworks. It's a declaration of God's name and God's character. This is just one example from Exodus chapter 5, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And the readers of Isaiah, before and after the exile, they would have been familiar with the Exodus. You know, maybe as they're sitting there in Babylon and they grab the scroll of Isaiah and they start to read it again, maybe there's this little spark of hope that begins to flare. But as the, the faithlessness that led to the exile shows, 
the hopes of God's people weren't enough to rescue them. Salvation had to come from something outside of themselves. They needed someone to pull them through the darkness to undo the horrors of exile. Well, back in Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet promised uh, that a king is going to come and arise out of God's people and to do just that. Listen to verses 1 to 5 of that chapter. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belts of his loins. So this, this king, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, he's going to be this faithful servant of God, the people of God, the, the kingdom of Israel was always meant to be. This is Jesus that he's speaking about. He's the faithful servant that appears here in just, just a glimpse He's the Savior who who helps those who cannot help themselves. And through the prophetic voice of Isaiah, he then speaks to them in the next few verses. This is who's speaking in verses 4 to 9. So let's look there now and let's follow the faithful servant. That's point number two, follow the faithful servant. So in contrast to the people's hopelessness, we see the, the confidence in the faith of the servant. There's three characteristics of the servant here on display. He's a wise teacher, he's obedient, and he knows that, it, that in the end, after everything that he's going to go through, that the Lord will vindicate him. So first of all, the servant is a wise teacher because he himself listens to the Lord. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So the servant, he hears God's words and he hears them as as those who are taught. What that means is that they they don't just wash over over him, they don't just go in one ear and out the other. They they sink deep down into the core of his being. And they equip him to teach and sustain others with that same divine authority. And this kind of teacher, this kind of authority, this kind of leader, it's the solution to the spiritual darkness that God's people have found themselves in. So all the faithlessness that led to exile, all the sin and idolatry and awful things that were happening uh, in the land of God's people, that was all flowing from the top down. It was the leaders of the Lord's people who had led them astray after false gods. And you know, when, when that happens, when the leaders of God's people abandon the truth about the Lord and the truth of his word and his gospel, not only do people fall further into sin, but they're also left without any real sustenance or consolation in the weariness and the hopelessness that follows. The servant is a 
drastic change in leadership for God's people. They've been drinking from a stagnant pool, but now the servant comes to clean up the water supply. It's the type of leadership I guess we're all longing for in some way. And we see the fulfillment of this in Jesus. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, it's written, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. The servants' words, they carry this special authority because they're, they're rich with the wisdom and instruction of God in a way that no mere human word could be. You know, no political leader or lifestyle coach or public intellectual or even a pastor can speak this way. When we're weary, when our own understanding fails us, when we become painfully aware of our own sin, it's the words of the servant that sustain us. And this wisdom and attentiveness of the servant, it's also seen in his obedience, which you get a bit of in verses five and six. With an open ear, the servant hears the command of God and obeys, even when it leads to, to ridicule and disgrace. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So take a moment to appreciate just how stark the contrast is here between the servants and Isaiah's original audience. They were being punished with exile specifically because of rebellion and disobedience. And the servant is the exact opposite, even when the immediate physical consequences of that are so painful and so horrible. Once again, it's a complete change from the top down. And the servant doesn't just tell people that they need to be more obedient. He actually lives out that life of obedience amongst them, despite all the anguish and disgrace that it brings. Now, he doesn't just stand at a distance and assume that they'll eventually learn to, to get it right and get on with it. Now, they've proven their sin time and time again. God knows that better than anyone else. Well, instead, the servant lives out a life of obedience that his own people never could. And again, we're hearing echoes here that will come to a crescendo in the gospel. Jesus endured the rejection and disgrace of his own people for the sake of going to the cross. The language of striking, of spitting, of pulling out hair, that all calls to mind the physical torment and humiliation inflicted upon Jesus by the Roman soldiers. And throughout all of that, despite not deserving a single blow of it, or how great the temptation must have been to turn back, he was obedient to his Father's will. He hid not his face. In fact, the gospel writers tell us that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, to redeem his people, knowing exactly what was waiting for him there. But how could the servant endure this? Well, because he had absolute faith in the joy that lay on the other side of that suffering. He knew that in the end, the Lord would vindicate him against all who would oppose him. Verses seven to nine, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. 
Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. So the servant endures the disgrace of those who strike him because he knows that disgrace is not his final fate. He has the utmost confidence that God helps him and is near to vindicate him. This isn't just wishful thinking. Look at the end of verse 7. He knows that he won't be put to shame. He doesn't just think it or maybe kind of hope for it, but he's not sure. He, he knows. He knows that God will preserve him. Those who contend against him, those who set themselves up in opposition against him, they'll all be swept away. And all of this was for the sake of his sinful people. The writer of Hebrews tells us that for, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's seated in glory. He's seated interceding for his people. The path of obedience will lead through suffering and even death, but it always ends in that triumph of true life. Jesus' body didn't stay in the tomb. His resurrection was a triumphant battle cry against the enemies of sin, of death, of Satan. His return will make that victory clear for the whole world to see. A wise, obedient servant ultimately triumphs because he is chosen by God to accomplish his task. He is the embodiment of the hope that God's people have lost. God's hand is not shortened. His power to deliver has not failed. Instead, he comes to his people in the form of his servants and calls them to trust in him. And that works out in verses 10 and 11. Live by faith in exile. Live by faith in exile. So the servant doesn't just appear, live a perfectly obedient life, and then vanish again and leave everyone else to figure it out. He steps into the world precisely to grab his people by the hand and bring them along on this path of righteousness with him. This is verse 12 of chapter 11. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So even in the apocalyptic darkness and terror of the exile, obedience to God and his servants, it still leads to life. And for us Christians today, we too are living a kind of exile. You know, we aren't united by any one nation. We're scattered across the world. We have no physical temple that we can come to in order to worship. We know that this world isn't our home. We look for the one to come. Peter, in one of his letters in the New Testament, he calls Christians sojourners and exiles. And it feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? 
mean, just look at the state of Christianity in the modern West, or even just specifically here in Scotland. Churches closing, being bought over by nightclubs or casinos, the whole general cultural tide seeming to drift further and further from the truth of the gospel. It's easy to just give up. It's easy to just despair. But even if the church might look dead to us in this part of the world, its foundation remains. We're on the other side of the coming of the servant. And this call to faith, it still applies to us as much, as much to us today as it did to them back then. God has not divorced his people. He's not had to sell them to make up for a debt. Instead, he's calling them back to himself. So the servant opens, verse 10, with the call to obedience. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. God's people seem to find themselves in a darkness where no light can penetrate. They've indulged in horrific disobedience and now they're reaping the bitter reward. Their world seems to have ended, but hope still survives. The way out comes from trusting in and relying on the Lord, which is practically worked out through faith in and obedience to the voice of his servant. The alternative is to just try and, try and create our own little sources of light. But verse 11 shows where that will lead. Behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourself with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So although they might try to walk by the light of their own fire, it won't change the path that they're on. Only faith in the servant will lift them and will lift us from the path of disobedience and spare them from the destruction and torment that sin leads to. As I was reading that verse, uh, I was reminded of one of my favorite novels, and I sometimes get weird looks from people when I tell them this is one of my favorite books if they've read it, but that's The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's a fun-filled family adventure. Um, it's not. It's a very, very dark book. Um, yeah, it's not, not exactly the cheeriest of reads. Uh, in that novel, the, the world has well and truly ended. And we're following this father and son, and they're trying to make their way across America. They're trying to get to the sea. And they encounter various horrors and depravities along the way that kind of feel like the sort of thing the Old Testament prophets were warning about in the first place. And despite all the evil that they face and the extreme measures that they have to take in order to survive, the father, he reassures his son that they're the good guys. And he says that this is because they're carrying the fire. And the son asks, well, what fire? And he tells them, the fire inside you. And one of the reasons I love this book so much is that I think it is a vision of how hope can survive 
no matter how bleak the situation gets. But it's painfully wrong about where that hope comes from. The servant tells us pretty bluntly that we can't walk by the light of the fire that's inside us. If there is any fire inside of us, all it can do is show us the next step on an already doomed path. We need Jesus to be our torchbearer and guide us along a new path. And this is so different to the message of of the world around us that tells us to look within for hope, that tells us that there is this fire inside of us that can guide us and fulfill us and make us complete. And maybe that's what you believe right now. Maybe that's where you're at, looking inside of yourself for answers. Maybe you've never had any encounter with Jesus before, or, or maybe you have, but it doesn't feel like he can lift whatever burden that you're carrying, or that he could possibly forgive all the sins that you've committed. He can. You know, if this is the first time you've heard this call to, to trust and to obey him, please answer. You know, faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that it won't ever feel like the world's falling apart sometimes, but it does show us the only person we can trust when it does. God's people would not be able to find their own way out of exile. Only faith in the Lord can do that. And we have examples of that being worked out in the lives of figures in the Old Testament, like Daniel or Ezra or Nehemiah, they all were on the other side of the exile or even in the depths of it. And still they clung to the promises of God. But their stories also show us how human initiative, human hope, it can never be enough. Sin lingers and with it comes the cycle of disobedience and despair. But there is the servant. The servant did come. And as we've seen already, this is Jesus. He is the faithful servant of this passage. His wise and faithful and obedient life is the source of our own hope and faith. In every disobedient and despairing age, every age between his first coming and his second coming, it's, the, it's his voice that calls his people out of darkness and into the hope of joy and salvation. Okay, so the world can often feel like it's all falling apart. The exiles in Babylon literally had their entire world ripped away from them. Well, who do we trust then when the world falls apart? What is our hope built on? It's the servant, Jesus Christ, the one who is faithful and righteous and can deliver us from the darkness of our sin and lead us to our true home. So as we close tonight, please heed the call. Trust and obey the voice of the servant. He will be our guide through the darkness and his hand is not shortened. He will forever have the power to redeem and to deliver. Amen.